he's here to say what made the list. Top Man! Aqualads and Aqualasses, welcome back to the Aqua Cave podcast feed for the latest edition of Top Man. Prepare yourself for some list-based entertainment. And you know what, guys? I say this all the time, but I think I've got a doozy of a top ick for all of us today. So, I think I've talked about Cobra Kai before, here on Top Man or Bright Man or whatever fucking man show I was on. Remember the man show? Jesus Christ. Um, But anywho, so I did Cobra Kai quite a bit. And the other day, I was, you know, surfing around on the old World Wide Web, looking at some entertainment-based websites, and I read an article that the individuals that are responsible for creating Cobra Kai, the television program are going to be tackling another 1980s film classic and giving it the old Cobra Kai treatment. Uh, They're going to be producing a show called Sam and Victor's Day Off, which, if it doesn't ring a bell, let me explain. So what they're doing, uh, if you recall the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you remember the scene where the two guys at the uh, parking garage steal Cameron's... Well, they don't steal. They borrow the car that Ferris and Cameron and Sloan drive to Chicago and famously make that big jump with the Star Wars theme playing. They're making a show all about those guys in the day that they had when Ferris and company traveled to Chicago. Pretty clever, I gotta be honest with you. And I love this idea of revisiting older films and diving into maybe some of the lesser characters or individuals who weren't the main characters and really just going at it and playing in that sandbox. Because after all, it's all about the potentiality of that world and sort of creating a brand, if you will, to do battle with things like the MCU, the DC Extended Universe, and what have you. Now, I'm not saying they're trying to you know, line up with those things, but there's so much money in nostalgia and there's so much money in the concept of a quote-unquote shared universe. So it got my brain thinking, and today we're going to cover the top 10 potential spin-offs that could maybe happen. Because after all, in this day and age of streaming services, these fucking companies will greenlight just about anything in hopes that they stumble upon the next Cobra Kai, Stranger Things, Rings of Power, whatever the fuck you want to you know compare it to. So if that sounds entertaining... I'll tell you what, this is going to be a deep dive into some random corners of some very popular films. So don't worry, if it it sounds a little strange to you, we're going to cover, you know, most of these topics, if not all of them, come from very popular movie films that you're probably at least familiar with. And so I think you'll find some entertainment with Rin. Let's go ahead and get started with... Oh, let me tell you what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to give you... Uh, you know, a potential title, and I'm going to kind of walk you through a synopsis. Maybe your first episode, what happens, and what really becomes the genesis for the entire television program. So starting with number 10, stop what you're doing and get your ass over to Mars. Because the 1991 or 90 film Total Recall is a big fan slash cult favorite. Arnold Schwarzenegger famously saves Mars, or does he save Mars? Was it all a dream? But before he could really help out the citizens of Mars, he had to travel to Venusville, sort of a a 
dren, uh, a dreg of society type area full of like strip clubs, whorehouses, bars, all sorts of uh, items of ill repute. And I'd like to revisit Venusville, but I'd like to travel back to the past for a bit of a prequel story that I'm calling Triple Trouble. You know, before Mars became liberated, what was life really like in Venusville? I had to imagine all types of crazy characters and shenanigans happened in that bar that everybody works in. You know, what were the individuals who work in that bar up to? Sort of like an Empire Records type feel. Was Benny the cab driver a regular in the establishment? I'd like to think he was, and he'd be one of our supporting characters. Who remembers Melina, the demure athletic chick, in in the words of the film, that secret spy Hauser or Quaid, Arnold Schwarzenegger, fell in love with and uh, used as his uh, assistant in the venture of saving Mars. Well, Melina had to get started in Venusville when she was a youngster. What was her first day on the job like? How did Tony the Mutant get that crazy face? How did that little gal come into ownership of the bar? And back to the initial question I pondered, who could have possibly helped Melina get through her first day of turning tricks in the complicated landscape of Mars? Well, I think there's only one person for the job. The lady with the three boobs. And that's why the show's called Triple Trouble. Not only does our main character become the three-boobed lady who helps our second character, Melina, get through the hard times at the uh, whorehouse in which they work at, but also, what the hell happened to Betty the cab driver? How did he get so many kids? Was he always a piece of shit who would betray anyone for a buck? Kind of like your Better Call Saul. Why did Benny become so mean? I like it. You know, it's probably more of an HBO type feel. You gotta be able to do all sorts of things like violence and nudity, sex, drugs, maybe a little rock and roll. But at the same time, it could sort of be a nice view into the greater world of Total Recall. Why was Mars such a shitty place to be? Just how expensive was it to buy clean air? You know, maybe the gang gets into some shenanigans where they run afoul of a young Richter, famously played by Michael Ironside. Maybe Sharon Stone's character even shows up. And maybe, just maybe, in the very last episode, uh, a young, good-looking Austrian, thanks to some de-aging technology, walks into the bar and meets Melina for the very first time. We fade to black, knowing that Arnold will soon become a good guy, maybe. Does anyone really know what happened in Total Recall? Was it all a dream? Is this a dream, perhaps? I don't really know. But I would absolutely watch Triple Trouble. Number nine. It's called You Think You Know Me. But it's not N-O-M-E. It's N-O-M-I, which is a name of a very, very famous movie film character. Naomi Malone, Elizabeth Berkley from Showgirls, has put her past behind her. Sometime after Showgirls, she settled down for a normal life, and she's now a suburban mom in an uptight Ohio community. She has a husband and two daughters, just living that normal suburban existence. I'm sure she's in some sort of a book club or other boring suburban things that you can think of. Her oldest daughter 
is the star of the high school soccer squad. But due to budget cuts, there's no money to uh, you know get the soccer team transported around to, to their away games. They need new uniforms. They need to hire a coach, etc., etc. And so she helps her daughter plan a talent show to help raise money, perhaps with the promise of a big attraction performing as the main event. Now, the big day comes, and the talent show goes off without any problems. However, the big act that was supposed to perform the closing number is nowhere to be found, and the team is fearful that everyone will ask for a refund. Nomi Malone springs into action and performs a dance routine that's very popular with the, with the onlookers. Now, get your heads out of the gutter. It's not some sort of crazy sex dance routine, but it is perhaps a little erotically charged and over the top. When the act goes viral, Nomi, the suburban housewife, becomes sort of a viral sensation. And when that viral video is viewed by the wrong people, the past returns to haunt her, and her suburban Ohio life will never be the same. Fuck it! I'm in! Give me some more World of Showgirls. And it needs to be filmed in that sleek, really expensive-looking way that, uh, you know, Showgirls was. Now, I see this more as a comedy, however. You know, maybe we can get Kyle MacLachlan and his crazy fucking hair to come back. Maybe Gina Gershon comes back looking for love. I don't really know. Maybe the Toon Man from Speed. I forget his real name. Glenn Plummer. Why do I know this? The dude with dreads from Showgirls seeks out Nomi because he was always in love with her that day that he couldn't fuck her because she was on her period. I'm just telling you what happens in Showgirls, folks. I'm not trying to be obscene or vulgar. The movie is what it is. It was rated NC-17 after all. But this has got to be a tongue-in-cheek funny one. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that someone who did, you know, exotic dancing or big stage nude topless dancing should be uh, shamed for their past or anything like that. But I think the Nomi character was probably trying to put it all behind her. And she needs to learn to embrace all the versions of herself to find the best possible Nomi. After all, she probably looks in the mirror every day and thinks to herself, I think I know me, but I really, really don't. Number 8. Encino Men. Let's travel back to Encino, California, in a spin-off to the fantastic film Encino Man. Dave and Robin found love after high school, that being Sean Astin's character and the gal that he was in love with, and they still live in Encino with their family to this very day. Their best friend, Stoney, Polly Shore. After high school, he joined the military. He was in the army now for a bit, and he returned from duty in Iraq a hero. He was randomly selected for jury duty and fell in love with the concept of American law. He put himself through law school, fell in love with the beautiful woman that he married, and her, excuse me, and he became the son-in-law to a man who runs a prominent law firm in Hollywood. So Stoney has become an entertainment lawyer who makes the big bucks. Linkovich Chamofsky, a.k.a. Brendan Fraser, the Stone Age Stone Man, or Encino Man, who was discovered, the caveman, I guess you will, and his blonde lover, Betty Nuggs, which was the name they gave the cave woman who pops out at the end of Encino Man, went on to live lives of their own 
after the boys helped them acquire false identification paperwork that claimed they were true American citizens. Life has been good for these individuals. They've all accomplished various levels of success that they're comfortable with, as Link also went on to be a famous and successful race car driver. All of a sudden, a huge earthquake rocks the valley of Encino, and hundreds of icemen are discovered, waiting to be found. Society destroyed, or not destroyed, but society is in an upheaval with news that individuals from the Stone Age could potentially walk amongst us. Could these individuals be used as free labor? <gasps> that sounds awful, actually, now that I say it out loud. Could these individuals be trained for some sort of crazy military force? Do these individuals have rights and privileges that citizens of America should have as well? Society doesn't know. But an evil corporation that's a construction company actually caused the explosion to rock the valley. Because the man who owns this construction company has been obsessed with the concept of finding cavemen that he could train to be his own potential workforce. This man is none other than Shush! Himself, Matt, Robin's ex-high school lover. He's on a quest to find the cavemen and make them his own. Can the boys reunite and help cave person society prosper? I don't know, but you better tune in to Encino Men every week on Disney Plus until the answers are found. Number seven on the list also revisits a tired and true American comedy masterpiece. It's called Eric Was Pregnant. Eric from Billy Madison is finally released from prison for his schemes and attempted murders. He's waited forever for the day that he could finally walk as a free citizen, as he's been planning his entire prison stay with the plan to exact revenge on the revolting blob. Max, the high school principal who ultimately betrayed him. He's gone a little cuckoo, I suppose you could say. Eric, released from prison, shows up on the doorstep, still wearing his prison uniform. I don't know why they didn't give him his regular clothes back. Uh, ready to murder Max as soon as he opens the door. However, a young man opens the door instead. A young man with fiery red hair, much like Eric used to have before he was in prison. Suddenly, the revolting blob Max appears at the door with this young man. It turns out, unbeknownst to Eric, he uh, had it. Well, he knew he had intercourse with, but a random one night stand occurred during the events of Billy Madison, and this young woman was indeed pregnant with Eric's child. So I guess you could say, Eric is pregnant. Congratulations. Oh, feel those kicks. He's going to be a soccer player. He is. He is. But Eric's son lost his soccer scholarship when on the field he behaved in a way that was unbecoming of a soccer man and therefore has no way to go to college and pursue his athletic dreams. The revolting blob doesn't know what to do with Eric's young son as he feels he's raised him as long and as best as he could as he tried to make good on the mistakes that he made during the events of Billy Madison. And yikes, by the way, imagine being a youngster 
growing up with the revolting blob and his alleged desires, Eric is shocked into sobriety. Well, mental sobriety, I guess you could call it. And goes to find a job, find some money, find some way to finance his unknown son's trick to the world of college soccer. He's reached his wit's end. No one will hire him. No one will give him a bank loan. And so he turns to the only man he knows personally that has a shit ton of money. He goes to visit his old nemesis, Billy Madison. Eric pleads at the mercy of Billy, and Billy agrees to give him $1 million so Eric can get his life on track, and so Eric can help his son. However, if Eric is unable to complete a task bequeathed to him by Billy, he will owe Billy not only the $1 million back, but also a penalty of $100 million. Well, what do you want me to do, Billy? It's simple. You have to play on the soccer team with your son. After all, you were two-time All-American at Harvard Track. Billy will make all the arrangements. And if your father-son soccer team doesn't win the big championship at the end of the year... You owe me 101 million smackers. It sounds outrageous! But after all, Eric knows this is the penance that he must pay and agrees. And so a television program, much like Eric's unknown son, is born. And I think it sounds absolutely fantastic and would watch the shit out of it. Especially when you consider the fact that I fucking love Bradley Whitford randomly showing up and stuff. And he's got like that crazy like white ghost hair now and imagine it all strung up and out of sorts trying to keep up with these young collegiate athletes and how did billy madison pull all these strings to make this thing legal who cares it's the world of billy madison will the penguin show up god i hope so will steve buscemi show up i don't know how do we possibly convince adam sandler to get off his lazy ass put on some non-sweatpants and appear in this spinoff I don't know, but after all, this is a world of fiction. I don't really know about the rest of you guys out there, but I've always wanted to return to the magical land of Oz. So let's get Chris Klein to reprise his iconic role as Chris Ostriker in our number six potential spinoff, American Oz. We all remember Oz for American Pie. He's very sensitive. He's the opposite of Stifler. He knows that you just need to talk to a chick, dude. I mean, after all, he joined the choir to hook up with that chick, Heather. And I think in the last American movie, whatever the fuck it was called, American Reunion, I think him and Heather finally get together after they both flee disastrous relationships and whatever. Well, guess what? They got married and they had a couple of kidsters. But now, tragedy has befallen upon the Oz. Oz is now a widower because we couldn't get Mina Suvari to come back. And you know what? We don't really need her. But his existence is fun. It's quaint. He lives in the small town of Great Falls, Michigan that he grew up in. And he runs a lacrosse shop and keeps the local lacrosse teams in supplies and even gives them a discount when the kids can't afford their full gear. He's truly come full circle from douchebag to awesome bag. 
he's got a young daughter who's coming of age, and he's really not sure how to guide her through these tumultuous years of high school. After all, when he was in high school, he was a bit of a douchebag. All of a sudden, a new neighbor moves in next door. It's a lady, just about a year or two older, it seems, than Oz himself. And she's also single, with a teenage son, just about the same age as Oz's daughter. And Oz, you know, he waves to her. He says things like, Hey, hello, welcome to the neighborhood. I'm Chris Klein. You want to help me and my friend Chun-Li take down Shadow Law? Yeah, this is Nash. Nash, out! God, I fucking love Chris Klein so much. But he can't quite place it. But this woman that he now lives next door to looks awfully familiar. And he sometimes catches this woman glancing at him. Maybe she's wondering the same thing. Finally, one day Oz goes to visit, inviting her to maybe come over and get to know some of the folks in the neighborhood. Oz suddenly realizes it. She's a college chick. It's going to happen, right? Oh my God. The woman who now lives next door to Oz is none other than beautiful. You know, from Suck Me Beautiful. It's the college chick that Oz thought for sure he would hook up with that night when he was a senior in high school. She did give him some good advice. And oh my God, wouldn't you know, a friendship is forged based on mutual need. They become fuck buddies. Because after all, at this stage in their lives, who doesn't need someone to fuck? And it is American Pie, after all. But this college chick isn't a college chick anymore. She might find herself in a situation where she needs help raising her rambunctious, very horny son. But what is going to happen when college chick, or beautiful's son, falls for Oz's daughter? And to make things even worse, what could possibly happen if Oz falls for the college chick? What desperate members of the American Pie cast can we persuade to cameo for a couple extra dollars to put to their drug fund. And can Oz help the college chick out when she decides to purchase the failing dog years hot dog restaurant? Because after all, who doesn't want a fantastic hot dog related restaurant in their community? To top all the craziness off, what happens when the college chick and Oz are playing in the sheets and their crazy neighbor from across the street Mr. Levinson arrives on their doorstep with a freshly baked American pie. Ridiculous, yes, but a great chance to see Chris Clyde get back into acting and do something entertaining. I'd buy that for a dollar. We've come now smack dab to the middle of the list at number five, and I think it's quite a doozy and a very, very deep poll. It's called... Happy, happy. Who remembers the crazy antics of lawyer Fletcher Reed from the film Liar Liar? It's Jim Carrey. And when Fletcher's young son, Max, had a birthday party, it didn't turn out the way that Max wanted because his dad, Fletcher, just wasn't there to be a part of the festivities. And Max made a wish when he blew out his birthday candle that for an entire day, his dad couldn't tell a lie, and I think we know how that story ends up. But if you ask me, that birthday party 
didn't look so bad. They had a cake, lots of friends, some games, some festive music. And who was performing that music? Well, none other than Happy the Clown. Who remembers the random clown who's at the party with the accordion? And he sings a song that goes like this. Happy, 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 happy. I'm so happy today. And there was another scene that included that clown. I believe as Max is making his birthday wish and looking oh so very sad, the camera cuts to Happy the Clown, who also looks saddened by the fact that this poor kidster in front of his face just couldn't have a good birthday. You see, Happy, in his own personal life, is a bit of a loser, and the only way he can find any sort of happiness is to bring joy to kids when he's hired as a birthday party clown. It turns out that the very next day was Happy's birthday himself. And after spending a day full of boozing and prostitution, maybe a little bit of crack or something of that nature, he finds himself back at home ready to end it all. But then he realizes it's his birthday and decides to put the gun down. He grabs a Twinkie out of his pantry, finds a candle, and makes himself a little birthday Twinkie. And he makes himself an honest birthday wish. He realizes that his entire day, and maybe his life, has been forever changed by the fact that he did, wanted nothing more than to make this young boy happy. And in a drunken stupor, makes a desperate, but yet, like I said, honest and earnest birthday wish. I just wish I could have made that kid happy. And he blows out the candle and falls asleep. He wakes up the next morning with a newfound enthusiasm towards life and a desire to find Max and, by God, make him happy. He showers. He shaves. He presses his clown uniform. He gets a new can of face paint, and he puts on his best face, puts on the full clown regalia, and heads to the house to where he once performed. He finds the house empty and a large for sale sign, comically, in the front yard. On the steps of the porch, he sees a blonde man with a baseball glove on, weeping into this glove on the steps and making a scene of himself. It's none other than Jerry. Audrey, that being Max's mom and Fletcher's ex-wife, it's her former boyfriend. You all remember Jerry. One, two, three, four, five, and one for good luck. You see that? He struck the child. <laughs> oh... <laughs> Ah, we'll take the glove and wrap it around with a big rubber band. It'll be great. Yeah, great gift, Dad. Thanks, son. Fucking Jerry. Carrie Elways, legendary actor from The Princess Bride, Saw, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. I fucking love Carrie Elways so much. But Jerry is oh so very sad. And he tells Happy the Clown that Fletcher and Audrey got back together and they took Max to start a new life and they moved to New York City, nowhere to be found in this spinoff. And he said that while it broke his heart, Max had never been so happy. But now, Jerry's life is ruined. Happy the Clown cracks a huge smile and proclaims, I did it! Jerry is a little confused. Happy, you see, is convinced that his magic wish came true. And even though we are living in this show, in a world where magic birthday wishes come true, Happy's wish absolutely didn't come true. It's just happenstance or circumstance. 
Jerry is in the depths of despair and believes that Happy is a magic clown. Happy buys into this himself. And so Jerry buys the house where Audrey and Max used to live and Happy moves in. Together, they set out on a quest to help Jerry find happiness with Happy the magic, maybe clown, along for the ride. (laughs) Will Happy and Jerry find a lady friend that will make Jerry's life complete? Will Jerry ever join Happy in a rousing rendition of the Happy song? Happy, 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 I'm so happy today. I guess that would be the Jerry version. Will Jerry, on an ill-attempted date with a female suitor, accidentally try to use the claw to help him snare his love? I'm the claw. You're afraid of the claw. And can Happy survive a dangerous encounter with former baseballer Jose Canseco when he attempts to help Jerry put the moves on one of the sluggers' former flames. I don't really know if anybody remembers Happy the Clown from Liar Liar, but now that him and Jerry have reunited for their own comedy shenanigans on fucking Lord Knows What channel, I think everyone will find themselves singing the happy song at the end of every episode. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, not every show can afford to be so happy-go-lucky. I would venture a guess that uh, most of the shows here on our potential spin-offs list have been looked at rather humorously by design, but let's get a little bit more serious here. Number four. It's called Breaking Rad. R-A-D, you know, like radical, or like that video game Rad Racer. Hmm. So, Lucas Barton was a youngster that had the world in the palm of his power-gloved hand. He was the king of his junior high, and his entire small Utah town cheered him on as he took on the largest video game contest in history that was known only as Video Armageddon. Lucas, in the competition fell victim to Jimmy 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 Woods, a.k.a. The Wizard. And Lucas placed second in this all-too-serious competition. Afterwards, his life was never the same. Fast forward 35 years later, and Lucas owns a small pawn shop in a desolate Utah town. One day, a strange hooded woman enters the store and offers to pawn him a vintage Nintendo Entertainment console. Lucas is appalled by this offer, as he's since sworn off video games and everything that they have to do with. However, realizes he realizes the system is in rather pristine condition, and tries to pull a cunning ruse on the woman, and agrees to take it, and offers a very, very reduced fee. Much to Lucas's surprise, this mysterious woman accepts his meager offer and hurriedly leaves the shop. As she runs out, her hood falls off and he catches a glimpse of her fiery, bright, red hair. Which, of course, brings him thoughts of memories past. For he once loved a red-headed young girl when he was a kidster. Lucas then inspects this video game system 
and hopes that he can list it online for a ridiculously premium price that'll help get him back on top. When he opens the cartridge dock to inspect its cleanliness, he sees a video game cartridge has been inserted. He removes the cartridge and finds that it is indeed an extremely rare and valuable one-of-a-kind collector's item. It is an official 1989 video Armageddon competition cartridge. And on the back, a sticker is labeled contestant number 169. Not only is it a cartridge that contained the sample games that were a part of the video Armageddon competition that Lucas was once a part of, it is the cartridge that was assigned to Lucas himself. He gasps at the cartridge. He wonders what could this possibly be all about. At that very moment, his shop is invaded by a hit squad of heavily armored and weaponed goons. Lucas barely escapes his pawn shop with his life and is forced into a long journey that will allow him to unravel hard truths and discover the true purpose behind the infamous video Armageddon competition. Whoa! That sounds like a rousing romp into a a world of video game spies, intrigues, and perhaps a hidden scientific purpose to the reason why we would train children to be engaged in video game-related competition. What are the secrets? Well, I can't reveal all of that here. You'll have to tune into Breaking Rad when someone inevitably listens to this podcast and decides to make it themselves and gives me zero credit. Let's move on to item number three. Back in the premise of the somewhat uh, bizarre, as the British Bulldog might say, it's called Lost in New York. Yeah, strange. This sounds like a couple of things I'm already familiar with. Home Alone is a franchise that people desperately want to return into their lives. I know this because every fucking Christmas those movies are on nonstop in my house and I just want to rip my ears off. And Disney tried very desperately to make something happen with that shitty movie they released last Christmas. I don't even remember what the fuck it's called. Home Alone. Uh, Home Alone, not Macaulay Culkin is what they should call it, okay? Because it didn't fucking please anyone. And like I say, that's because they didn't bring back the character that everybody wants to see to the franchise. And you guys know exactly who I'm talking about. Of course, it's Mr. Hector! Wait, what? Who the fuck is Mr. Hector? Well, according to Wikipedia, that's the name of the character that was portrayed by Tim Curry. You might know him as the guy that runs the New York Plaza Hotel. You know, he smiles like the Grinch, and he's like, Oh, Mr. McAllister, yes. That's that's why you've got your stolen credit card. Yes, I'm Tim Curry. Now, of course, Tim Curry, uh, legendary acting god from, uh, what's he in? Is he in uh, fucking Clue? I mean, he's in so much. Rocky Horror Picture Show, I mean, obviously. But who can forget Mr. Hector's associates? Hester, the woman with the red hair and a bun. And, of course, Cedric, who still has plenty of tip left over. And Now, of course, we all know Cedric's name. The Hester name, the name of the woman, comes from Wikipedia. So, folks, if it's wrong, blame them. Well, guess what, folks? 
After the events of Home Alone 2, this unique trio finds themselves, indeed, lost in New York when they're all fired from their jobs for the roles that they played in the shenanigans that disrupted the hotel during the events of Home Alone 2. Because you gotta imagine, these folks are all getting fired, right? And not only fired, they are blacklisted from the hospitality industry. Now, a year has passed, so we got a bit of a period piece film here taking place in 1993, and this trio finds themselves on the streets begging for change as their only means of existence. On the morning of Christmas Eve 1993, they happen to be begging for change outside of world-famous toy store Duncan's Toy Chest, even though Duncan's Toy Chest doesn't seem to sell any licensed toys, which is what kids really want. They don't want fucking wooden wooden soldiers and fucking riding horses. They want G.I. Joes and goddamn Ninja Turtles and WWF superstars. It's always bugged me about Duncan's Toy Chest. You couldn't buy anything good that was licensed there. Anywho, they're outside of Duncan's Toy Chest begging for cash, and they are greeted by the overly enthusiastic owner of the shop himself, Mr. Duncan. Now, Mr. Duncan recognizes this trio as he often spends time at the Plaza Hotel entertaining guests or potential investors that he has brought to town, and he uses the hotel as a base of operations to show them a good time. Now, he feels empathy towards their plight and agrees to give them all jobs at his shop. The trio is, of course, elated and starts worming up to him immediately. Mr. Duncan sees that while they are desperate, they clearly haven't changed their ways. And so he offers them a proposition. A proposition known only as two men, one girl, one cup. No, I'm kidding. I made that part up. The proposition that he offers this trio is he gives them 24 hours to scour the city and find two turtle doves. You see, Mr. Duncan wants two turtle doves so he can release them to onlookers at his shop on Christmas Day morning. Sort of a minuscule, unnecessary task, but he thinks if these three can put their heads together and work together, they can show that they've overcome their past as assholes. And so, over the course of 24 episodes with each episode being one hour apiece. Kind of like that show, 24, with Kiefer Sutherland. Man, that's a show I wish I didn't know all the twists and turns to because I've never seen it. And now I can never watch it because I was told the spoilers. Of course, this trio has some wacky adventures running around New York City trying to catch two turtle doves. And halfway through the series, they realize they need the help of an expert to aid them on their quest. It's hard to navigate the streets when you're lost in New York all alone. So who's the expert that they bring in? Making their grand cinematic return, finally, to our screens in a Home Alone franchise feature. (gasps) What's the bird lady, of course? Who'd you think it was going to be? One of those goddamn McAllister kids? No, they're all assholes. Of course, the pigeon lady is still covered in bird shit and more than happy to assist in exchange for Tim Curry going down on her. To which he's like, But I'm sure that he does it off camera so the kidsters aren't whacked, uh, you know, where they have to witness this downtown-style event. Clearly, folks, this is the show that will get the Home Alone franchise back on track. 
Nobody wants to see any of those pesky Mr. McAllister kids because you want to talk about white privilege. Holy shit, did you see the size of that house? Were we supposed to feel bad for the McAllisters? I mean, how do these guys get all this money? Is it true that Mr. McAllister may have been involved in the mafia as the original draft of the script hypothesized? Oh no, it was Frank who was in the mafia. You know, find yourself bored one day, enter in the dark uh, corners of the internet, and read about some of the original Home Alone script treatments. They're quite fascinating indeed. Uh, back to serious territory, though, and I actually do mean this one, okay? So, obviously, the the list is sort of designed around subversion. Uh, fun, though. I mean, hey, I would honestly watch any of these TV shows, but in all seriousness, I did think to myself, well, when I thought of this initial concept, I was like, you know what? That could actually be like a pretty cool show that would maybe... You know, uh, this this one I'm about to talk about anyway, not the fucking Home Alone one. Uh, there would be an interesting glimpse, glimpse into sort of how humans deal with the modern era, but using like an existing film to sort of talk about that. So let's just get into it. I call it, and it's kind of a silly name, but hear me out, The Human Show. All right? And it is serious. So the 1997 film, The Truman Show, was eerily ahead of its time. It was a window into our society's voyeuristic desire to watch real life unfold on our television screens. Now, in all seriousness, the the Truman Show film kind of paints a unique picture of the world that it takes place in. You know, you've got the people at the bar that are constantly watching the Truman Show. You've got, like, the, the people that are glued to their TV. There's, like, the guy in the bathtub watching. There's, like, the, the old women who are, like, all by themselves alone in the world. But they have one another, and they have the Truman Show. And it's sort of done to be outlandish or to sort of, like, show how everybody in the world is attached to it. But if you want to take the concept seriously... And, you know, because even Kristoff, the guy that invents the Truman Show, says during the course of the film that he finds that some people leave Truman on overnight, you know, just, just for comfort to feel like someone's with them, okay? Now, if you were to take this show and this concept seriously, what happens to these individuals when the Truman Show is suddenly and forever off the air? Because, you know, spoiler alert for the Truman Show, sorry, it's an old-ass movie, Truman walks off the set of the Truman Show, and, you know, we sort of fade to black, and that's the end of it. Cut the feed. What else is on? You know, it's sort of a gag. But you've now got an entire generation of people or an entire subset in our culture that kind of don't know what to do with themselves. And so we, in a scripted nature can watch like an hour-long drama like Westworld style type show unfold as we watch Truman show addicts from across the gro- from a cl- across the globe excuse me figure out how to live their lives without the Truman show comforting them or giving them whatever it was that they felt they needed how did they get there in the first place i mean i'm really serious here like kind of reminds me of the leftovers I mean, if you're familiar with the leftovers, I don't want. To, that's a show that you probably should watch. I don't want to spoil anything, but like when, when the half like the world, it kind of half the world population gets blipped, and like, you know, you're with your spouse at the grocery store. You turn around to ask them if they, we need bacon, and then they're gone, just gone forever, like gone. No Thanos snap. Like this is a very serious show, and this whole thing that they relied upon for their comfort, their existence, whatever it was, maybe. Maybe someone was like a war vet, and the Truman Show made them feel like they could uh, 
exist with a person. Like maybe they had PTSD and the Truman Show kept them calm. Maybe you're a widow or a widower and like that's all you had. Or maybe you're, I don't know, maybe your parents died when you were very young and instead of dressing up like a bat to fight crime, you, you kind of looked at Truman as your dad. Now that, that last one's a little silly, but I don't know. I think it's a fascinating concept because... It's established in the world of The Truman Show that it means so much more than a television program. After all, it's been on the air for like 34 years, because I think that's how old Truman is. So it's touched different generations. It's been a part of different events in the world and what have you. It's seen wars. It's seen tragedy. It's seen political spectrums change and come and go. And I know that I might be on a high horse of ridiculousness here, but I kind of fucking love it. And you know what the best part of this entire show is? Because a lot of these sh- this shit that I've made up, it, it's not really feasible or possible because the actors involved just aren't either alive anymore or they're too old or something like that. I've tried to keep that to a minimum. But like the Home Alone gag, like Tim Curry's like 25 years older. How could he possibly star as the same character the next year? You know, but this show, you don't need anyone or anything. All you have to do is establish that the Truman Show existed in this world until yesterday. And then you just cast people that fit the roles for the characters that you need. I'm no genius trying to toot my own horn. Trust me, I know I'm not. I'm just some guy with a random podcast. But I would absolutely fucking watch a show just like this. And uh, who knows? You know, maybe someone out there someday with some power and clout will have the same sort of idea. And we could see if it really would be as good as I think it might be. But nonetheless, that's the human show. A glimpse into the reality of humanity. And I just invented the tagline. You can thank me later. Paramount Plus? I think Truman Show's a Paramount movie. Who out there that works at Paramount Plus and a decision maker capability is a fan of the Aqua Cave? No one? Ah, fuck me sideways. Alright. Well, we still have one more uh, crazy spin-off show to go. Now anyone out there who might be familiar with the Johnny C chronology may have heard a brief synopsis of this when I was on an episode of a uh, uh, fucking the Jenny the Jenny position when we talked about uh, or we watched the film Chopping Mall which is a great little film from 1986 it's about some robots but here we go the number one potential spin-off in my brain it doesn't have a name yet I still don't have one but it's the 80s robot cinematic universe show, 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 or movie, whatever you would prefer. So here we go. The attempt is to build a show or a shared universe that includes as many robots from 1980s films, television, or what have you as humanly fucking possible. Taking a page out of the Avengers rulebook, The best excuse to get everyone together is to have a bunch of robots fight the fight that is too big for one of them to fight on their own. So here's the scoop. Basically, a long dormant computer program is accidentally copied into the Department of Defense network and gains access to a global communications network for the very first time. The program is, of course, Joshua from the 1983 film War Games. Joshua has a fantastic robot voice that just has to continue on in cinema. Hello, Professor Falcon. Would you like to play a game? 
How about a nice game of chess? So Joshua is like a sentient computer program that once, in the film War Games, had the ability to launch the nuclear arsenal of the United States against its enemy, the Soviet Union. But after simulating like a trillion games of tic-tac-toe, Joshua came to understand that nuclear war, much like tic-tac-toe when played properly and with mathematic precision, is a no-win scenario. It's actually a very poignant movie and a pretty decent fucking film. Well, when Joshua gains access to our global satellites, he comes to a conclusion that mankind has not used the time that he's given them wisely. And he begins in secret to build an army of killbots. Killbots, you may remember, from the 1986 Cheese Fest Chopping Mall. They're the little robots that have the little tank treads on the bottom. And they kill you and say, have a nice day, because they're supposed to be mall security guards. Now, in this scenario, Joshua sends his first batch of killbots to kidnap Ali Sheedy. Well, it would be a character portrayed by Ali Sheedy. I don't know if it's her War Games character or a different character, but there's plenty of Ali Sheedy to go around. And what Joshua does is the, has the killbots bring her to some sort of hidden, hidden factory or hidden computer base. I don't know what. But they turn Ali Sheedy into the terrifying female robot from Superman 3. Good lord, I know I've talked about this bad boy before. Nightmare Incarnate. Joshua then implants a virus into the programming of Detroit police officer Alex Murphy. You called for backup? Uh, Also known as, Dead or Alive, you're coming with me. Your move, creep. They'll fix you. They fix everybody. Robocop, the future of law enforcement. And Alex Murphy begins killing innocent citizens at random, his programming corrupted. The world is then gripped in panic as a 30-day countdown appears on every digital device that is in existence. The signal cannot be tracked as the technology that's being used to broadcast the signal is too old to interact with any of our modern technology. See, this is why you've got to bring in the 80s robots because Joshua runs on old code and he uses old code to do his dirty deeds. Father, please forgive me for you know not what they do. My name is Joshua and I've got dirty deeds. That's what uh, attention deficit disorder sounds like, kids. Call your doctor for more information. Enter Ben Javari, robotics technology expert played, unfortunately, by Fisher Stevens. Now, I'm not here to justify Fisher Stevens playing this character in Short Circuit 1 or 2, but it happened and to deny it is to deny it. Ben Javari, for some strange reason, now sports an eye patch. Don't know who he's trying to cosplay as, but he certainly has it. His suggestion to the world governments is allow him to build a strike force using older technologies to fight against the threat of Joshua. He's approved and begins assembling his team. Up first, Johnny Five from Short Circuit 1 and 2. Kind of acts as the leader or default or de facto Captain America of the team. Benjamin, I required input. All you gave the world was death put. That doesn't really make any sense, but it's still a Johnny Five impression. Up next, Psycho. Seiko or Sicko. I don't know how to pronounce it. That's the official name that I learned today in my Google machine of the female robot from Rocky Four. You know the one. 
Happy birthday, Polly. <laughs> that robot, she is the Black Widow of the group. Up next, they recruit Jinx, who's just returned from space camp, who's sort of your Hawkeye, wimpy one of the group. Every group like this has to have a genius billionaire playboy philanthropist, right? Well, it's a good thing that we've reached out to whatever company owns the rights to Daryl, because up until this moment, every robot that we've talked about has been um, from the hallowed halls of properties that's now owned by MGM, believe it or not. It's crazy that they have all this under their roof and they haven't done anything with it. I am available. But Daryl is a data analyzing robot youth life form, but somehow he's aged to be a badass Tony Stark type character, kind of a prick, kind of a cock asshole billionaire, but we need someone like that on the team. And of course, he looks human, but he's a computer underneath, so he's got all kinds of weapons, I'm sure. As any group of Avengers would tell you, we have a Hulk. And there's only one 80s robot left that could fill the need of a Hulk. Since RoboCop has gone on the fritz, his arch nemesis is going to be reprogrammed for the forces of good because there is one ED or ED 209 left in a Detroit warehouse somewhere. (laughs) And he will be loyal as a puppy to these robot Avengers and help take down the evil forces of Joshua. And there you have step one in building your 80s robot cinematic universe. Together, this unique league of robot defenders may not be able to save mankind, but you can be damn well sure they will revenge it. And folks, that is going to wrap up the top 10 potential spinoffs here in the Aqua Cave. You know, I hope it was a fun time for the rest of you. Of course, I always uh, enjoy getting a little creative, and I realize that some of these potential spinoffs were a little on the ludicrous side, but you know, we're half entertainment, half serious here. If anybody wants to get serious, we can certainly develop these idea develop these ideas further. But let me ask you one simple question before I remind you to subscribe to the Aqua Cave, remind you that I'm Johnny C and that a winner is you. Despite the ridiculous nature of some of these premises, or premises, if you will, they do kind of sound like something that they would uh, maybe try to do, right? I mean, I'm not crazy here. I feel like in this day and age of streaming and universe building for money, anything goes. And if you think we're that far off, well, I might ask you to take a harder look at some of your streaming services the next time you don't know how the fuck to entertain yourself. And of course, if you're looking for ways to entertain yourself, subscribe to the Aqua Cave podcast feed so you get notified whenever new content drops. I'm Johnny C, and a winner is you.